0: Our scripture passage this morning is from Matthew 4, 1 through 11. It says, Then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And after fasting forty days and forty nights, he was hungry. And the tempter came and said to him, If you are the Son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. But he answered, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Then Jesus said to him, Be gone, Satan, for it is written, You shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. Then the devil left him, and behold, the angels came and were ministering to him. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated.
1: Let's pray together, and I want to pray about two specific matters Uh, in terms of our membership. A couple members had a very rough weekend. Misty Gutting, one of our members, had a massive stroke on Friday. And uh, Tex Jackson's oldest son passed away this weekend, so let's lift them up. Father, we do pray for Tex and her family, and we do pray for Misty and her family. We pray for Tex that you would be near, uh, even right now this morning, as I'm sure she's surrounded by other family members, that you would help her to grieve well, to grieve as uh, one who has hope, as your word says. We grieve and we... We can grieve deeply, but but our grief is different than the world's grief. And so I pray that that would be the case for her this morning, that her grief would be a grief with hope, and she would be able to gain perspective on your goodness and ultimately hope for the resurrection and eternal life. And God, we pray for Misty Gutting, Lord. We've been encouraged by some progress, but we pray for all the more. I pray even today, even right now, God, that she would make significant progress throughout the day. I'm thankful for her faith and trust in you, and she's been able to be a winsome witness to you through her many trials, and I pray that that would just continue, and I pray for Brian. Help him to lead well. Help him to be a means of encouragement. Help him to lean into you. I'm so thankful for his faith as well and his strength in you and just reflecting on your word and how he trusts you and your goodness, and he knows you're at work, and we're thankful for that. Maintain his faithfulness and strengthen his hope. God, we're so thankful for your patience with us, your forbearance with us sinners who turn our backs on you and your call to the good life too often. We confess it and we're thankful that your patience and you forbear with us. We do not deserve your mercy. We have a great need for Christ, but we have a great Christ for our need. Thank you for the good news of the gospel. Thank you for grace. It's the foundation upon which everything else comes to pass. God, thank you for yesterday's conference for our women. Thank you for Susan Heck and her ministry and the power of your word and the clarity of your word. And I pray that as a result of yesterday's time in your word, that many trajectories would be set and and the lives of our women would continue to change, continue to be conformed to the image of Jesus. God, would you continue to build a culture of discipleship here? A place where it just it's just what we do. We help one another follow you. I'm so encouraged by so many D groups that are happening. We just pray for the the ones that are now meeting that you would be there, that your word would be understood and applied, that sin would be confessed and turned from, and we pray for more. Pray for those who are not in D groups that they would take initiative. And being one, the ultimate goal is conformity to Christ. And so we know that's a prayer you love to answer, so we ask for it. God, feel our joy in you. Make us a winsome people. Make us an attractive people, adorning the gospel well. The grass withers and the flower fades, but your word endures forever. We pray it in Christ's name. Amen. Oh, it's good to be here, man. I was gone last week, and uh, when we're gone one week, it feels like we're gone for a month. Alicia and I were with about 12, 13, 14 other senior pastors and their wives, and uh, just trying to encourage one another and talk shop, and uh, it's, it's rough out there. <laughs> and on our way home, though, Elise and I were just reflecting with gratitude for you. Uh, we hated to be away, and we just, we just are so thankful to be a part of what God's doing in this church. He's at work in a unique, unique way here. He is. We're thankful, and I just want to thank you for being a church that is committed to the Lord, a church committed to the glory of God in all things. It really is a joy to be your pastor. All right, open your Bibles to Matthew. We're going to continue our series through the Gospel of the Kingdom, Matthew chapter 4. If you're using one of our chair Bibles, it's page 759. Matthew chapter 4, and we're going to consider the temptation of Jesus together this morning. By way of introduction, let's read the verse 2 verses. Matthew chapter 4, verse 1. Then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And after fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. There's the understatement of the day. After fasting 40 days, he was hungry. But notice how the chapter ends. Remember, there's no chapter breaks in the Bible originally given. They're really, they're really well-placed, but we need to remind ourselves there's no chapters. So this is just a continuous narrative. And notice how our chapter, verse 1 of chapter 4, begins. Then, what happened just before this? Well, it was the baptism of Jesus. Hair still wet from baptism, then, after the Spirit's descent in the form of a dove, then, after the Father expresses his love for his Son, only then, after his identity is publicly marked out, does the Spirit then lead him into the wilderness. And here we have yet more allusions to the Old Testament. I've said every week that one of the purposes of Matthew is to show that the story of Jesus is the culmination of the story of Israel. Listen to the words Of Deuteronomy chapter 8, verse 2. And you shall remember the whole way that the Lord your God has led you these 40 years in the wilderness, that he might humble you, testing you to know what was in your heart, whether you would keep his commandments or not. So here the setting is the, the wilderness, the setting is the desert, and you have Back in Exodus, you have Exodus chapter 4, verse 22, the Son of God is what Israel is called, wandering in the wilderness for 40 years. And here we have Jesus, the Son of God, tested in the wilderness after fasting for 40 days. What Matthew's saying is Jesus is the true Israel. Remember, God promised to save the whole world. How? Think way back in your Bibles, Genesis chapter 12, God picked a man and said, through your family, Abraham, I'm going to transform the whole world. Through Israel, God was going to save all the nations. Israel was supposed to be the solution to the problem of sin that happened in Genesis 3, but they needed to rescue themselves. Israel was to be the vehicle that was to bring salvation to the world, but the ambulance broke down on the way. The carriers of the solution are themselves infected. They're not the solution. In fact, they're part of the problem if we read our Old Testament. We need an obedient Israel, a faithful Israel. Jesus is that man. He will succeed where Israel failed. Back in the Old Testament, after the renewal of the Old Covenant, listen to what Exodus 34 says about Moses. And the Lord said to Moses, write these words, for in accordance with these words, I've made a covenant with you and with Israel so he was there with the Lord 40 days and 40 nights. He neither ate bread nor drank water, and he wrote on the tablets the words of the covenant, the Ten Commandments. And so what God, the Holy Spirit, through Matthew is showing us, is here we have a new Moses fasting for 40 days as he begins his ministry to bring about a new covenant. God's at work in a new way. So let's consider then Satan's three attempts to tempt the Son of God. First attempt is in verse 3. Matthew 4, 3. And the tempter came and said to him, if you are the Son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. First, let's state the obvious. Satan is real. Say more about that in a moment, he's real, and notice what he's called. He's called the tempter. That's what he does. He tempts the Son of God and he tempts the people of God. He wants you to stumble, he wants you to disobey, he wants you focused on other things, he wants to keep you away from corporate worship, he wants relational strife in marriages, he wants unforgiveness, he wants bitterness. He wants you looking at pornography. He wants you discipled more by Netflix than you are by the word of God. He wants you discontent. That's what he wants. He is the tempter. It's what he does. And how does he tempt Jesus here? He he tries to get him to question his identity. He comes to the son and he says, if you are really the son, well, then you can turn these stones to bread. Well, you say you're hungry. Well, if you're the son of God, that's no problem. Fix the problem. Fix it right here and right now. He goes after the weak spots. He knows Jesus has been fasting. And so he goes for the carotid. And he tries to get him to question his identity. Through the forked tongue, he says, are you really the son of God? Does he really love you? And he seeks to cast doubt about God's goodness. And how does Jesus respond? Look at verse 4. But he answered, it is written... Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Jesus says, it is written. He quotes scripture. It is written. And notice how he describes this written word. He says, it comes from the mouth of God. This is the word of God. And he says, like the body can't live without food, the soul can't live without the word of God. First attempt, Jesus is faithful. Second attempt, verse 5. Then... The devil took him to the holy city, set him on the pinnacle of the temple, said to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down, for it is written, He will command His angels concerning you, and on their heads they will bear you up, on their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. So first he aims at weakness. Jesus is hungry, and then now he aims at strength. and evil of evils, he twists Scripture to suit his own purposes. He loves to do that. The, the, The end, the back of false teachers are always Satan at the end of the day, and they always have verses. They're just twisted and distorted. And he says, if you are the Son of God, we'll show it. If God really has your back, let's see it. Use some spectacular means. Prove it. Well, how does Jesus counter the devil this time? Verse 7, Jesus said to him again, it is written, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. Same way. He quotes the Bible. He quotes from Deuteronomy chapter 6. You don't put God to the test. He's in the driver's seat, not you. You let God be God. Second attempt, Jesus is faithful. Third attempt, look at verse 8. Again... The devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said to him, all these I will give you if you will fall down and worship me. Now the enemy just goes straight for the gold here. He says, worship me, bow down, worship me, and I'll give you all the kingdoms of the world. And notice what Jesus doesn't do. Jesus does not contest the legitimacy of the offer. Because before the resurrection, before the ascension, Satan did have authority over all the kingdoms of the world. It's one of the reasons Jesus came was to take it back. It's part of what he means by the kingdom of God is here. God is becoming king. Let me just read some passages to show you this. 1 John 5, 19 says, the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. John 12, 31, Jesus says this, now is the judgment of this World, now will the ruler of this world be cast out. And I, when I'm lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. Before Jesus bound Satan with his death and resurrection and ascension, the enemy was deceiving the nations, Revelation 20. 2 Corinthians 4 calls him the God of this age. Ephesians 2, 2 calls the devil the prince of the power of the air. So Jesus, the offspring of the woman... Genesis 3 comes to destroy the offspring of the serpent. He comes to plunder his good, but he hasn't done that yet. And so here Satan offers him authority if Jesus will but worship him. You may, you may be tempted to think, well, I have nothing like this temptation. I cannot relate to this at all. This is no temptation of mine. The only people that worship Satan are those weirdos that hang out at 4 phantom late at night. But listen to Ephesians 2, and this describes all of us before we came to Christ. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 1. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air. The spirit that is now at work and the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. This is who we were before we came to Christ. We were followers of the prince of the power of the air. And you say, no, of course I wasn't. Well, that's what he wants, right? He's very subtle. Before before Christ, though, all of us did. We didn't think we were, but that's exactly how he wants it. He wants people thinking that, well, we're just following our own way. The course of the self. Or he'll love to use even seemingly good things. Anything really distract us from Christ and his church. Maybe it was sports. Maybe it was money. Maybe it was career. Maybe it was ambition. Maybe it was comforts. The powers of darkness will use whatever to keep us from prioritizing the main thing. So how does Jesus respond here this third time? Look at verse 10. Then Jesus said to him, Be gone, Satan, for it is written, You shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. Then the devil left him, and behold, angels came and were ministering to him. Jesus trusts his father. He says, my food is to do the will of him who sent me and accomplish his work. Jesus knows that he will inherit all the nations. He doesn't need the offer from Satan, right? We've seen here, Jesus knows his Bible. Well, just in chapter three, we read a quotation from Psalm two. Remember the father says of the son, this is my son. It's an allusion to Psalm two. Let me remind you what Psalm two says. As for me, I've set my king on Zion My holy hill. We saw from the New Testament, that's the ascension. Zion is heaven. I've set my king at my right hand. We could paraphrase. I will tell of the decree the Lord said to me, you are my son. There it is. Today I have begotten you. And the book of Acts tells us that happened at the resurrection. And then notice, ask of me and I will make the nations your heritage. And the ends of the earth Your possession. Jesus knows this verse. Jesus knows it's about him. Jesus knows he's going to inherit the nations and he doesn't need to take it from this enemy. He's got a work to do first. In fact, he's going to talk about it in Matthew. Keep your your finger in Matthew 4 and flip over to Matthew chapter 12. He must first bind the strong man, that is the devil. Look at Matthew 12, verse 28. But if it is by the Spirit of God, Jesus says, that I cast out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. Or how can someone enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man? Then indeed he may plunder his house. All the kingdoms of the world will become Christ and all authority will be given to him. But not as a result of bowing down to Satan, but as a result of suffering obediently in his father's plan. How does the book end here in Matthew? Many of you know it, right? 28, 18 to 20. We call it the Great Commission. It begins with the great announcement in verse 18. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me as a result of the resurrection. So Jesus knows he will inherit all the kingdoms of the earth, but his kingdom is going to be established via crucifixion. His crown, he'll have a crown, but it'll be a crown made of blood-drenched thorns. He'll have victory, but his victory will happen as he goes through death and out the other side. And so he tells Satan, be gone. He ends the exchange and sends his adversary packing. You know not the plan of God. Get behind me, Satan. The kingdom comes through the cross and no other way. You know, Peter made the same mistake. Flip over to Matthew chapter 16. You are a hindrance to me, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. See, the kingdom will come, but it comes via crucifixion. The Son of God must defeat the accuser, and he must do so through the cross. He has a work to do. So Jesus here, he quotes scripture three different times. And all three times, he quotes from actually a very little small section in the book of Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy six. To eight, three different times. Do you think there's intentionality in that? What's Deuteronomy 6 to 8 about? It's about Israel being tested in the wilderness. It's the part where Moses is addressing the Israelites before their entry into Canaan, where he reminds them of their 40 years of life in the wilderness. See, Jesus was tempted and he comes out victorious, unlike Israel of old, in the wilderness for forty years, the true Israel, the son of God, he's faithful. He's the true and faithful Israel. Ultimately, the only obedient Israel. But he's not only true and faithful Israel. He's also the last Adam. So, the Gospel of Luke, where Matthew, the Gospel of Luke, also has this little story about Jesus' temptation. But it doesn't come right after the baptism in Luke, it comes right after the genealogy. So Luke 3 is the genealogy of Jesus and it traces all the way down to the end of the book, verse 38, to Adam and it calls Adam the son of God. Then what's the very next story in Luke 4? Again, a bad chapter break. It's the temptation of Jesus. Showing us that not only is he faithful Israel, he's the faithful Adam. Where Adam was tempted in the garden by the enemy and fells, the last Adam succeeds The first Adam was tested by the devil in the garden of God's blessing while the second Adam's tested in the cursed desert and yet is faithful for us on our behalf. He's the true Israel, he's the last Adam. Third attempt, Jesus is faithful. Let's close our time together by considering what we can learn as a church now about temptation in light of this passage. Eight ways. Number one, temptation is the normal Christian life. We're not likely not tempted by Satan himself, but he has a whole host of minions, the powers of darkness. And temptation, we need to hear this, temptation is not the same as sin. Some of you are hypersensitive. You have these hypersensitive consciences. You're introspective. And you're tempted, and you feel guilty about being tempted The accuser, the tempter, he will try to induce guilt when you haven't done anything wrong. Temptation is not sin. Sin is sin. What we've got to understand is we're going to be tempted with all sorts of sins and all sorts of ways, but it's only sin when we give in. To be tempted is not sin. And temptation never goes away. It's one of the frustrating things about the Christian life. It ain't going anywhere. In fact, we would probably think when we become Christians, temptation's gone, and we probably would think as we grow in our Christian faith, we would probably think temptation would be less frequent. It's actually the opposite. In many ways, as we become a Christian, mature in the Lord... It increases. Temptation is ratcheted up when we grow in Christ and when we grow as a Christian. I and mean, Part of that is now there's a target on your back. Just think about it. Before you were a Christian or if you were just a nominal Christian, not pursuing the Lord, you're not much of a threat. But as you engage and you start pursuing the Lord, now you're a threat to the domain of darkness. The target on your back has enlarged. And he hates it. And it's not really that he hates us personally. He hates Jesus. And as we begin to more faithfully reflect the image of Jesus in us, that's what he wants to destroy. So temptation is the normal Christian life. No temptation is overtaking you. It's not common to man. Common to man. Some of you, you doubt your salvation because you're constantly being tempted to sin. And you say, how can I be a true believer if I'm always at war with my sin. Dear Christian, hear this. The very presence of the battle shows you are a child of God. So how's that? Because if you didn't have the spirit of God, you wouldn't care. There'd be no battle. You just sin to your heart's content and think nothing of it. Listen to Galatians chapter 5, verse 17. For the desires of the flesh are against the spirit. And the desires of the spirit are against the flesh. For these are opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things you want to do. For the believer, the spirit and the flesh are at war. In the unbeliever, they're not at war because they do not have the spirits. They're only driven by the flesh. And so the very presence of the battle shows you have the spirit of God. So temptation's the normal Christian life. Number two, it's not going anywhere, but you can overcome temptation. We're not like Oscar Wilde. I can resist anything but temptation. No, we can and we must. It'll always be present. But because we've been born again, we've been filled with the Spirit, the very empowering presence of God himself, we can have victory over sin. Favorite passage, a good one to have memorized, 1 Corinthians 10, 13. It says, No temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. God is faithful, and he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. But with the temptation... He will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. Consider four truths in this one verse. Number one, temptation is common to all. We've already said that. Number two, God is faithful. God is faithful. We can look to him and his character. Number three, he's not going to let us be tempted beyond our ability. With each temptation, we can say no. We can. And then fourth, he always provides a way of escape. And so we have what we need to avoid it. It's common, but we can overcome it. Number three, we've already seen the enemy goes after weak spots. I think temptations in many ways are person-specific. The Bible says the enemy has methods. He has schemes. There are traps set that have your name on them. And so the question is, do you know? Do you know your weak spots? One main way to overcome sin and temptation is to know where, yourself are, are, where you yourself are vulnerable what are they? Do you know them? Interrogate yourself. Interrogate your sin. After you sin, ask questions about it. How, when, why, what? One of the most helpful questions I find in my own life when I'm tempted to sin or when I sin is what was it that I wanted at that moment? It's going to ultimately help me get at whatever idol it was, this false Savior. Interrogate your sin. If you have relational strife, when does it tend to happen? Is there a pattern? What is it about? Is there a common theme? What are the triggers when you fall into any sin? Where does it tend to happen? Why does it happen? Is there a certain time of day? Is there a certain place? Well, be careful in those times. God calls us to be killing sin or sin will be killing you. Romans 8, by the Spirit, put to death the deeds of the flesh. That's violent language. It's as violent as you can get. And so go to war with your sin. He's going to come after weak spots. Satan goes after Jesus when he's hungry. I don't know who came it up, came up with it, but years ago, Elise and I were introduced to this idea of halt. Maybe you're familiar with it. H-A-L-T, right? You tend to be more prone to sin when you're hungry, angry, lonely, or tired. He goes after Jesus when he's hungry. I can't tell you how many men I've talked to That fell into temptation late at night. They're tired. Let their guard down. Less alert. Your grandmama was right. Ain't nothing good happened after midnight. Go to bed. That may be part of it. Some of you guys need to go to bed earlier. (laughs) Hungry, angry, lonely, tired. We are especially prone to sin. For me, when I get hungry, like real hungry, I start getting irritable. And I just know it. I got this little thin, thin layer of patience when I'm hungry. I just need to step back and have a sandwich. So be on guard. Halt when halt applies. Fourth, though, not only the weak spots, he'll go after strong spots. Powers of darkness will appeal to your pride where you're strong and we'll end up relying on our own strength. The powers want us thinking we're independent. They want us puffed up. Fifth, the common tactic is to make you question your identity, right? He says, if. You are the son of God. Are you really a child of God? Does God really love you? And again, he wants you looking to anything but Christ for your identity. I mean, just think about all the things that our culture tells us to find our identity, our meaning, our fulfillment. Look anywhere but Christ. Look for a job. Look for a house. Look for sports. Look for kids, money, reputation, whatever. Fill in the blank. So to fight temptation, we need to know who we are. And the best way to know who we are is to know who Christ is and what he's done for us. Just think about all the glories that are true about you if you've trusted in Christ. You're a new creature. You've been born again. Just think about that imagery. Born again, like total fresh start. New heart. Sin's forgiven. Conscience cleansed. Debt paid. Guilt removed. That's you if you're a Christian. Remember chapter 3, what the Father says of the Son? This is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. If you've trusted in Christ, that's you. Your life is hid with Christ and God. So when God looks upon you, he sees his son whom he adores. You are a dearly beloved child of God. He is for you, full stop. And when we know that, we can then see temptation and sin for what it is. It's an empty promise. We know better. Sin can never cash the checks it writes. Sin never delivers on its promise. Sin is a lie. It will not lead to the good life. It will not satisfy. It will always let you down. It will always go wrong. It will always end badly. And when you know who you are, a dearly beloved child of God, you can trust Him. You can trust your Father in heaven. He knows best, His way is best. So every temptation there becomes a matter, will I believe God or will I not? It becomes a matter of unbelief. When we're not believing God, we'll believe that envy and lust and anger and gossip and worry and greed, that we'll believe that that actually leads to life. But when we know ourselves and we know God, we will be less prone to it. Know who you are and know whose you are. Identity precedes action. It's really a matter of knowing the gospel. Identity Proceeds action. Years ago, there was this Harvard study done. I don't even know if it was actually Harvard. They call it Harvard study. And it was in some elementary schools in, in South San Francisco. And these PhDs came in. They called it the Harvard intellectual aptitude test, I believe something like that. And they came in and they, it was really a trick on the teachers, but they came in and they supposedly passed around a test and they got the results in and they told the teachers, Hey, uh, these two students or these three students, or maybe it's this one student, they are on the verge of an intense intellectual bloom. And again, they, they didn't even look at the test results. They just made it up and they just randomly picked a couple students and, and then watched the teacher's behavior. And of course the teacher's behavior changed they focus a little more time on these, uh, these potential, you know, these potential geniuses, spend a little more time, give a little more encouragement. And when little Johnny's having a trouble with that math problem, he would say, well, you know, he's going to get it. You're going to get this. And he's on an intense, he's on the verge of an intense intellectual bloom. He's going to be fine. And lo and behold, the students start believing that about themselves and they rise up and their IQ actually rises. It increases. Because who we think we are determines how we act. Identity precedes action. Knowing your gospel identity is crucial to the fight against temptation. And so when the enemy asks, are you really a child of God? You know exactly what to say to him. I am by faith in Christ. Maybe that's not you. Maybe you're not a Christian in here this morning. I just want to invite you to it. There's no way you're going to overcome temptation without the Spirit of God. Your most pressing need is the gospel. It's Christ. Ways Christians have often summarized the way you should respond to the ABCs, admit, believe, confess. So if you're not a Christian, number one, admit you're a sinner. That's the first step. If you don't think you're a sinner, Jesus has nothing for you. The first need is to acknowledge our need. And so admit, I'm a sinner in need of salvation. B, belief You believe Jesus is who he said he is and he did what he came to do. You believe that he is the Lord of the world, that he died for you. And then C is the going public. It's confessing, I believe Jesus Christ is Lord and Savior. First step of obedience after that is believer's baptism. If you've got any questions about any of that, we'd love to talk with you, help you work through it. You're hoped, you're hopeless. You're hopeless and helpless without Christ. It's your first step if you're not a Christian. Six, temptation. The powers of darkness bring in at home here. They've really arranged Western culture so that we don't take spiritual warfare nearly seriously enough. Some of you have traveled abroad and it's a different conversation there. But here we, we, our epistemology is empirical, right? And what that means is we don't know or believe anything that we can't see, right? It's evolution, it's materialism. There's nothing beyond the material. It's the air we breathe in Western culture, and so we can't see the demonic, the powers of darkness. Therefore, we don't believe. So many in Western culture, they don't believe there's a spiritual battle because they don't see it and experience it. But just because we don't see it, does not mean they do not exist. And boy, is not the greatest tactic. Of an enemy is convincing your opponent that you don't even exist. Then you can have your way. Guard is down. Having your way like just the line of fattened cattle making their way to the slaughterhouse. We need to wake up. We need to wake up. We're going to be victorious over temptation. Let me read from Ephesians 6 verse 12. We do not wrestle against flesh and blood. Man, the church in America needs to hear this. Not fighting against people here, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. This is our battle. So we need to wake up to it. Seventh, to have victory, we must wield the sword. How Jesus combat the enemy? When the Son of God, let me zoom out for a minute. Is this not incredible? When the Son of God confronts the devil, he does so by means of a book. Jesus is a man of Scripture, even Jesus. Notice what he doesn't do. Think of what he could have done. He could have done anything he wanted. He doesn't look for spiritual voices. He doesn't look for prophetic dreams or supernatural visions or special revelations. He doesn't summon lightning from the sky. He quotes the Bible because Christianity is a religion of the book. To win when tempted, we must wield the sword of the spirit. Speaking of Ephesians 6, this is the armor of God and the sword's the only offensive weapon we have. Let me read it again. Starting in verse 12, hear it again. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day. And having done all to stand firm, stand, lots of standing in this passage. Stand, therefore, having fastened on the belt of truth And often worry that there's just not enough Bible engagement among us. And if I say that about a church like ours, what is it like in churches that don't take the Bible nearly as seriously as we do? I think the number one problem with the church in America today is biblical illiteracy. We say we believe it, we say it's our authority, but do we actually read it? It's not sufficient to have the book. We must pick it up. We must spend time with it, read it, meditate on it, memorize it. J.C. Rowell says this, knowledge of the Bible never comes by intuition. It can only be got by hard, regular, daily, attentive, wakeful reading. Jesus knew his Bible. That's why the temptation lasted that long. He quoted scripture. He knew what the word of God had to say. And so we've got to have it in our hearts and in our minds. We've got to give God something to work with. We've got to give the Holy Spirit some ammunition. Psalm 119, verse 11, I have stored up your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. How does the psalmist seek to fight against sin? He stores up the word in his mind and his heart. He memorizes scripture. So when he tempts you to envy, you reply, it is written. Envy makes the bones rot. When he tempts you to lust, you say, it is written. I made a covenant with my eyes not to look lustfully at a woman. When he tempts you to fear, you say, it is written. The Lord is my helper. I will not fear. What can man do to me? When he tempts you to anger, it is written. He who is slow to anger has great understanding. On and on and on. At least one takeaway from this sermon ought to be Get a plan for memorizing scripture. There are apps, there are books, there are note cards. Make a plan, start filling your heart and your mind with the word of God. Eighth, in the midst of temptation, we tend to forget the gospel. It's really not that different than forgetting our identity, right? Forgetting our savior, forgetting him, forgetting our priest who knows what it is to be tempted. He's been there with us. And he knows so much more than we do, right? He was tempted in every way. He never sinned. See, we have a breaking point, don't we? We get tempted, we get tempted, we get tempted. There's a point in which we fall. He did not. Fully tempted. None of us know what it is to be tempted at the highest level because we fold. Hebrews chapter 4. Since then, we have a great high priest Who's passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who's unable to sympathize with our weakness. That's such an encouraging passage. He can sympathize with our weakness. But one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. We've got a priest who knows what it is to be tempted, yet was faithful where we were unfaithful. Hebrews chapter 2, verse 18. For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. Martin Luther wrote a hymn, it's a bit wordy. It's kind of hard to sing, so I not sing it here too often. But let me close by reading it. A mighty fortress is our God. A bulwark, a strong wall, a bulwark never failing. Our helper he amid the flood of mortal ills prevailing. For still our ancient foe doth seek to work us woe. His craft and power are great and armed with cruel hate. On earth is not his equal. Did we, in our own strength confide? Our striving would be losing. We're not the right man on our side, the man of God's own choosing. Dost ask who that may be? Christ Jesus, it is He. the Lord of hosts His name, from age to age, the same, and he must win the battle. And though this world, with devils filled, should threaten to undo us, we will not fear. For God hath willed his truth to triumph through us. The prince of darkness grim, we tremble not for him. His rage we can endure, for lo, his doom is sure. One little word shall fail him. Jesus. Let's pray together. Father, we're thankful for your plan and your purpose. Your desire is to save all nations. Your original means was the people of Israel, but they weren't the solution, they were part of the problem, and so we're thankful that you sent the Messiah, the faithful Israelite, the last Adam who lived a perfect life that we could not live, that your people couldn't live, so that ultimately the world will be saved through the offspring of Abraham, but that offspring is singular, and his name is Jesus. Thank you for the grace we find in him, even us who are not Jews, but Gentiles, strangers that you've included. Thank you for his example. Pray that we would value your word like he valued your word, that we would truly believe that we don't live on bread alone, but by every word that comes from your mouth. Thankful for his example of faithfulness, but we're also thankful for his faithful life and death on our behalf. We all fall short. We fall into temptation, many of us this morning. And so we're thankful that we have a high priest who knows our weakness and doesn't condemn us. He doesn't point the finger at us. He doesn't push us away, but he has open arms because he knows us and he loves us. I pray that we would have a gospel assurance in here that we would know because of what Christ has done that we're your children. And out of that identity, we would act faithfully. Help us, we pray in Christ's name. Amen.